0: Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn again to Mark, we'll get started. Mark chapter 9. Go before the Lord with the word of prayer, and Father, just ask that you'll speak to us once again, that you'll feed us, Lord, and and just uh, teach us more about who you are and your ways and how to walk in your ways. And just thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. So we're in Mark chapter 9, and we're just going to read a few verses tonight, 38 to 42 and it says and john answered him saying master we saw one casting out devils in thy name and he follows not with us and we forbade him because he follows not us and jesus said forbid him not for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me for he that is not against us is on our part for whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to christ Truly, I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck and he were cast into the sea. So, the pattern that we've been seeing here since Mark chapter 8 is Jesus will speak, he'll clearly talk about his coming, suffering, death, and resurrection to his disciples. And they misinterpret it every time. They don't have a clue of what he's talking about. They don't have a clue of what the implications for their own lives are. And they're still clinging to this false idea, this false hope that his coming, his being there, his going to Jerusalem is gonna result in their glory, prestige, and eternal ease and comfort. That's what they've got in their mind. And so let me tell you what he says in Mark 8 after he talks about his crucifixion and rebukes Peter if this sounds like ease and comfort. Denial denies self. You need to take up your cross daily. Lose your life for Jesus' sake. He says, for what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Does that sound like ease and comfort? (laughs) And that's what he's saying. That's the implication of what I'm telling you. I'm going to take up, go and suffer on the cross. He's saying you're basically going to do the same thing. So, you know, what we've had happen through the years is people hear the message of faith, the message of trusting God, the fact that God wants to bless you. And he does. And people hear that and they think all they hear is part of it. I want to be blessed. I don't want to wait on God for the answers. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to share the gospel. A lot of us don't do that very well. I don't want to be ridiculed and on and on. I want to enjoy my best life now. And sometimes we can get caught up in that if you don't hear the message right. And they want to ignore the message of trials, of holiness, of suffering, and on and on and on. And I'm saying Jesus is telling us, we're reading through this gospel right here, that true Christianity that involves only what can I get is light years away from what the true gospel message is. You just don't get that sense if you read the Bible, the New Testament, all the way through. That all it is is how blessed can I be? That's not the message that you would get. And so last week we began to look at the second time. We said there's three times he brings up about his his death, his suffering, and his resurrection. And we looked at the second time last week and he explained the same thing to him, even just as clear as it ever was before and this time it says after he tells them they are afraid to ask him about it they don't understand it and they're afraid to ask him about what he's talking about they're afraid that he's going to give them another clear explanation They don't want to hear that. And they're also afraid he might rebuke them. So they get to the house. They're walking along, and they're back there. They're not thinking about what he just said. What are they doing? They're back there arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And they get to the house, and he asks him. he says, what is it, you guys? What were you talking about, discussing, arguing about as we walked along the way? And they're speechless. They are convicted to the core. They're fighting over who's going to be the greatest. And he says, wait a minute the greatest in the kingdom of god what you think it's not what you think it's polar opposite of what it means to be the greatest by the world standards nothing like that because in the world we all know this don't we that greatness is it's all about me my money my influence my power my position in the community it's all about doing what i want being first and jesus says that is not the way it is in my kingdom not the way at all defined by the cross and that's why he had just explained about the cross he says, now i'm going to tell you how this applies to your life he says if any man desires to be first the same shall be last of all and servant of all so greatness he says is not the man that's ministered unto it's the man that picks up the towel and ministers to others washes the feet of others he doesn't do it his way he does it the way of the master so listen, greatness in the New Testament and in the Bible isn't defined by God blessing you with houses, with cars, with success in business. Is it? Is that, we're not, that's what we're reading, right? We're all reading the same New Testament, maybe a few different versions, but greatness is defined by doing the common and simple task of serving others. That's what we talked about last week. And so he's sitting there with him and he brings in, like I said, it, I think it was probably Peter's child or his brother's. Little little child brings him in, puts his arms around him. He says, this is what greatness is. Putting your arms around, not necessarily a child, but one that is lowly like a child, has no status, the insignificant, the one down on the social ladder. He's saying, that's what greatness is. The one everybody wants to be ignored. Put your arms around them. Serve them. Help them. You want to be great, he says, and this is what he says to us. Then you make of importance the one that no one else considers to be important. The unworthy, the lowly, the despised, the ones we said that they can't pay you back. No honor in serving them. And what we need to remember is what he goes on to say. He says, hey, that may not seem like much in the world's eyes, and it's not in the world's eyes, but he says, you just need to think about this and remember that when you do that unto the least of these, who are we really doing it unto? The Lord Jesus himself. And not only that, he says, you're not only just doing it to me, he goes on to say, who even greater, not greater than him, but he says, you're doing it to the Father. You're receiving me and you're also receiving my Father. And boy, if you think about that, when the temptation comes to ignore somebody or you got something better to do than to help somebody out, I think we'd be a little more likely to say, wait a minute, let me remember that. I'm not just serving this person that I'm looking at. (laughs) That may not be much to look at but I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he says, because he says if we do that, the Father, we receive him, he is not unthankful, is he, our Heavenly Father? Because what does he say? Here, and also in the Sermon on the Mount, he says your Father will do what? He will reward you. Promises to do that. So in these verses that we're coming to here, we're still dealing with that concept or that idea of what it means to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And so John, the apostle, comes to Jesus with this situation he's going to talk to him about. And he thinks Jesus is going to applaud him for what he did. He says, man, we saw, Lord, we saw a man casting out demons in your name, somebody that is not a part of our group, and we told him to stop. And I'm sure when Jesus gave him the answer that he gave him, he's doing a double take. I think he thought Jesus was going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And what did he say? Uh, he spoke a command. Now, we don't get this in our English Bibles because you is singular and plural, right? But in the Greek, this is, he's speaking to the whole group. Now, he's not just speaking to John. And he tells the whole group, he gives them a command. He says, you all forbid him not. And it's a present tense command. He's saying from here on out, you don't forbid people like that from doing what they're doing. Stop telling people to not do that in the future, he's telling them. So here's one thing i want to talk about it talks about john in the beginning and we all like to think of the apostle john how, how do most people if i ask somebody write down what your what's your idea of the apostle john is most people would say the apostle yeah says there you go the apostle of love that's what everybody would say right wrote the gospel of john first second and third john book of revelation wrote much about love rested his head on the bosom of the lord you yeah. know close to the heart of jesus and if you ask some people, I had a customer one time, I brought up something about, well, the Apostle Paul says this, oh, the Apostle Paul, he's just a chauvinist. He's just hard-headed, you know, I mean, people will tend to think Paul's harder than John, won't they? And actually, probably just the opposite is true. So this is the only place we have here in his gospel where John, where John is named alone. Typically, he's named either with his brother James, quite a bit with him, or it's Peter, James, and John, like Peter, Paul, and Mary, Peter, James, and John, right? And he's part of that special inner circle, right? We talked about it. He's brought into the house to raise Jairus' daughter up on the Mount of Transfiguration. We just read about that. He's going to be one of those three. Jesus is going to the garden, and he's, you know, when you're going through a tough time, don't you want your friends kind of be there to support you? And that's what he said. He said he brought those three there to be with him as support. Of course, they couldn't stay awake. They weren't much support. But he seems like a special person, doesn't he? Had to be meek and lowly to be so close. But think about this. Back in chapter three, what was the nickname that Jesus gave James and John, the two brothers? Here's what it says And James, when he called him the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, he surnamed them Boanerges, which is what? Sons Sons of thunder. Where's the love in that? Huh? (laughs) So I'm saying, I think these two, apparently they had some quick temper and pride. They both had quick tempers and pride that had to be sanctified, if you want to put it that way, right? So in chapter 10, we're going to be getting that. They come up boldly to Jesus and they demand a place of authority. They say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to do for us, Lord. Can you imagine that? That's pretty bold, isn't it? And he says, well, okay, what is it that you want us? And they, what is it you want me to do for you, bold men? And they said, grant us that we may sit one on the right hand and one on the left in your glory. Now, that took a lot of hutzpah for them to say that. And he's like, I can't promise you that. That's not mine to give. And it says after that that the other disciples were much displeased with those two. It's like, who do you guys think you are? I mean, these guys had a lot of pride. And in Luke 9, When it gives this same account about the man casting out demons and forbid him to do that, it goes on to talk about they're going to Samaria. Like I said, Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's headed right there. And he sends messengers, it says, before him into Samaria to get some places for him to stay along the way. And they reject them. And so what do the sons of thunder say? They're ready to deal with these people. They say, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them there's our gospel john of love there's all the love being <laughs> manifest right so mark nine we have this case right here he sees this man is not part of their group and john's looking at him saying man he's talking to these other guys well, who's this guy he's, he wasn't hand selected like us we were hands we i even got a nickname me and james here me james and peter we got nicknames he hasn't been to the mountain He hasn't walked in the way. He hasn't had all the private instruction we've had and on and on and on. We've eaten and slept with Jesus. And who does this guy think he is? You know, it says in 1 John 1, he talks about the word. He said, I got a, he said, I looked at him, but he said, I also got a gaze on him. Gazing is what you do when you eat with somebody and you're having fellowship. It's more than just seeing them. You're looking at him. You're you're gazing at him. And he said, that's what he says. Go read 1 John 1.1. He said, not only that, but we handled him, shook his hand, touched him, embraced him. He said, that's the contact I've had. Who is this guy? John's saying. He acts like he's got the same authority that we do. Now, I want to just say this about John. You get this picture of him. Where's the love in all this, right? And I'm saying, that gives me hope. It does. Because God can take two men like John and James and so transform them that our impression of them when it's all said and done is nothing like what they started out to be. And I'm serious about that, it gives me hope. Because the grace of God came in their lives because they were not people of love, so to speak, until the grace of God and the Holy Spirit came in to transform them. And He will do that for any of us that are willing to get up on the altar. He'll do that for any of us. We sing the song, Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me, melt me, mold me, fill me, and use me. And only the Spirit of God can do that to us, right? And so to me, this, when I'm reading there what happens with James and John, and we could go through other people, right? But specifically, we're talking about John. That shows what the Word of life can do. So you're in here tonight, maybe you're not an angry person, maybe you're a fearful person. Maybe lust is your problem, covetousness, or pride. And listen, we're seeing that the grace of God when yielded to will transform you. And that's a great thing to me. That is what salvation is all about. Transformation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. And behold, Look, behold, all things have become new. That's what the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ will do. But John here, right here in Mark 9, he's forbidden this man to cast out demons, and he gives the reason. Look at the end of verse 38. He says, he followed not us, and we forbade him. Why? Because, he says, he follows not us. Now, we have a similar account back in Numbers, if you would turn there, please, back in Numbers chapter 11. Put something in Mark and turn back to Numbers 11. Numbers 11. What's happened here in Numbers 11, chapter 11? Moses has complained that it's just too much for him to carry the burden of leading the Israelites through the desert. And so the Lord tells him, he says, all right, here's the solution. I want you to pick 70 men of the elders of Israel. Get them together. And he says, I'll come down. I'll talk to you. I'll talk with Moses and I'll take of the spirit that's on you, Moses, and I'll put it on these 70. That's what he tells him he'll do. And so if you look there in verse 24, here's the result of all that. Numbers eleven twenty-four, and it says, And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them and they were of them that were written but went not out unto the tabernacle. So they were the ones selected is what it's saying, but they didn't go to the tabernacle like everybody else. They stayed in the camp, and it says, and they prophesied in the camp, verse 27. And there ran a young snitch, I mean a young man, and told Moses, and said, "El Dad and me, Dad, do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, my Lord Moses, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake, Joshua, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses got him into the camp and the elders of Israel. So Joshua's objecting. He says, My Lord Moses, forbid them. They're not with us. He's saying they're not here with us in the midst of the tabernacle, this holy place. This is where this should all be happening. They're out there in the lowly camp. Nothing good happens in the camp; it only happens at church. Nothing good happens outside of church, isn't that what some people think? It's God. that's why a lot of people used to think. And Moses tells him, he says, "You're jealous for my sake," and the implication is Joshua was jealous for his own position, his own sake, the fact that somebody else is doing something that should be done when Moses is there and he's there overseeing it. If Moses was the meekest man on the earth. He's not worried about ambition. He's not an ambitious person at all. Not worried about getting the glory. And here's the thing. Moses knew something, though. He's like, and John should have known this. Moses is like, I don't have any power to bestow the Spirit on anybody. That's not my power. And if God Almighty has chosen to put it on those two men in the camp, and they're prophesying there and minister to those people there, then that's his business. Joshua. That's in essence what he's saying there, and so this is not unique to Israel. It's not unique to the day of, of Jesus. That some people think everything has to be within their group, in their place, and anything outside of that's not the Lord. George Whitfield was one of the greatest preachers that the world has ever seen. Lived in the 1700s. He was ordained a minister of the Church of England, an Anglican, is what he was, but he was denied to preach in any of the churches they wouldn't you had to be granted a pulpit they wouldn't give him a pulpit and the reason is is he had the nerve to teach that you had to be regenerated and born of God to get into the kingdom of God that took a lot of nerve and they're like we're not letting you preach that here they closed all the pulpits to him so what did he say he says I'm going to go outdoors I'm going to go outside the camp. And that's what he did. And he would preach to huge crowds. People would gather that otherwise would have never darkened a church door. I don't know that I would have gone to those churches dead as could be. They were. They'd come there and, you know, he started off, he'd go to the hillside. And these miners down below would be going and coming from work. And he'd preach to them, and they'd be lining up, coming out of those mines, and it says you could see white rivers on their face. And what they meant by that was these miners were black. Their faces were black from working in that soot and getting that coal. And he'd be preaching to them, and they'd be standing there hearing it. And the Spirit of God through George Whitfield, these men would start weeping, and the tears would make rivers, and it looked like white rivers running down their face. He said, wash away that soot that was on their face. And that's the impact he had. He'd preach in parks, in fields, anywhere he could get a crowd. He didn't care. Outside, thousands. He did it, came over to America. Thousands upon thousands. They claim as many as 8,000 people, I believe, at one time. And America would come to hear him. Huge crowds would come out. Thousands, like 5,000 in Boston, near Boston. Boston only had, a, the city at that time, I believe, had 3,000 people there. They'd come from the countryside. They'd come from all over. And I guess he had a voice that would project. And like the Lord would get out in a boat, he knew how to use the natural surroundings to get his voice projected. Benjamin Franklin would go hear him preach. They were friends. Never was converted. <laughs> but do you think the ministers of that day in England and America were blessed to see him preaching and that people were being genuinely converted and turned from their sins? He was accused of blasphemy. He said, they said he was Here's an old word, besotted with pride or madness. They, con- they accused him of breaking the peace and unity of the church. And they told the groups, they told the masses, preaching should be done in a church, not out in the fields. And so he didn't care whose field he was in. And they'd say, especially not a Baptist field. That's what they would say. They would get on him about that. You know, you don't preach in a Baptist field of all places, right? and so here's what I would say were these people were they jealous for the God of the church of England or for their own position because they weren't attracting the thousands so the same was true for Joshua the same was true for John and the same is true today and so back in Mark 9 if you look there look what it says Mark 9 39 Jesus said he said unto them his answer was forbid him not for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me He's saying the same thing. He says, you're stopping him? Don't stop him. He said, are you worried about my sake? Are you worried about this for me? Man, there's no man could do a miracle. There's no man out there. This man's not casting these demons out in my name today, and tomorrow he's going to be a devil worshiper. That's what he's saying. That's not going to happen. That's not what's taking place here. He goes on in verse 40 and says, for he that is not against us is on our part. So here's the thing, our Lord at this point, he's not bringing in motives, is he, at this point? He's telling them you need to be cautious about stopping any work that is truly presenting Christ preaching repentance and has signs following. Don't stop them just because they're not part of our group, is what he would say. And so Paul, the apostle, knew this principle. He's in chains in a Roman prison. Can't do any preaching, Paul can't accept, To the soldiers that he's chained to, right? But he's saying that's not keeping the gospel from being preached or being presented. So look over in Philippians one, if you would. Philippians one. Philippians one verses fourteen to eighteen and it says there and many of the brethren verse 14 Philippians 1 and many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more <laughs> bold to speak the word without fear he says some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife but he says some also of goodwill. he says the one preach Christ of contention not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds but the other of love knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel and he says what then notwithstanding Every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And he says, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul's saying there are brothers and sisters out there in Christ. He's saying they're in Christ. These aren't the Judaizers. These are probably members of the church. He says, when they're out there preaching Christ, that's what they're doing. But some are sincere, but some are doing it out of selfish ambition. They want to take credit for bringing men to Christ. They're trying to add to my burden, he says, here in prison. They want to have a following. And they want to show they're every bit as important as I am. He's like, I don't care. He's like, Moses, are you jealous for my sake about that? Paul's like, no, 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 I don't care. He's not in competition. So he knows that this kingdom work, it's not about him, is what he knows. John said, they follow not us. Why wasn't he saying, Lord, they follow not you? What's this us stuff? Right? Right? There's a competition going on. It's, I'm saying there's competitions at all levels, it, within the church, out of the church, within with each other, you know? <laughs> we all know how that works, right? But the servant's attitude, so we're talking about the greatest still, remember? We're still talking about that. That is still the theme. The servant's attitude, he isn't worried about himself. He's worried about what? Just like with Moses, he's worried about his master's glory, not his own. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, what then, notwithstanding, verse 18, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, he says, the main thing with me is it's Christ is preached. And he says, therein, because of that, I do rejoice and will rejoice. Paul's like, look, I don't care what their motive is. I really don't. He says, and I don't care whether God's using them. Just because they go to another church, that's not the issue. Or that they're part of our group, that's not the issue. The fact of the matter is, it's Christ is preached. That's what matters. And I'm saying if they're preaching error, he isn't gonna put up with that. That's not what he's talking about. So he must have been, they must have been presenting a gospel in a true way. So at the seminary, when I went to the seminary, I went to a Baptist seminary, and I met a lot of people there that i just saying, as far as I could tell, it wasn't just like they were nice people or, I mean, I could just tell they were saved and of the Lord, loved the Lord disagreed on a lot of issues with them, but that was not the heart of the gospel for me. So one teacher I had, for example, he me and him kind of became friends and he taught my missions class. His name was John Kay. I'll say John Kay. So John Kay had been over in Northern Africa in a very Muslim part of Northern Africa, the heart of Muslim country, right? He eventually, actually, the reason he was back at the seminary teaching, they kicked him out of there. He was supposed to be there for like eight years. He only lasted two and they kicked him out of there because they said, you're evangelizing. You're not allowed to do that here. You're out of here. He couldn't get back there for years if he wanted to. But he told us this, told our class this. He said, God would send Muslims to his door that he had never met. And they'd knock on his door. And him or his wife would open up the door. And this happened more than once. Yes, can we help you? I had a vision. And God told me to come to you and your house and that you would share the gospel with me and tell me how I can have eternal life. Happened to him many times. And that's what would happen. <laughs> I'm listening to that. I'm saying, I'm not sitting here thinking, oh, wait a minute. You're a Baptist. You don't speak in tongues and you've never heard the faith message. This can't be possible. No, I didn't think that at all. How can God be blessing you like that? No, I'm sitting there. I'm thinking, wow, this is like, this is great. The, You know, God worked all this out for you. I'm thinking, I was blessed by that. Because one thing I know about John K. is when he presented the gospel to them, God wasn't sending him to somebody that's going to teach him error as far as the gospel went, right? He was going to teach them, this is what it means to be saved. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. You need to put your whole life in faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe John was genuinely saved. And that's the way it works. So... People were generally saved, and I could rejoice that that happened. I didn't have I wasn't sitting there struggling in that class. Back when I was in college, I went to OSU. Didn't last long, but I was there for a while, right? But on campus, there was this group. I was unsaved when I went there, as unsaved as you could get. There was a group that would go to all the college campuses across the USA. They went from California all the way to Maine, I guess. And that was they were supported by people. That was their ministry. And they would preach they were, when I look back on it, some of the things they said, but I was, I was ignorant of the Bible. I didn't know anything. Some of the things they said were very strange. But they would preach against sin and drinking and drugs. And they would say, the answer is to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would, I could hear that much of what they were saying. And I'm convicted. And I'd, I'd go, many times I'd stand in that crowd. And they'd have people come up. They'd get mocked. They'd get ridiculed. They'd have people put pot smoke in their face blow it in their face to humiliate him. And I'm saying, those guys there had an impact on me. They did. They were one of many people. In fact, I always thought, I'd love to do what he did. They would go there and open air preach. So it had a big impact. And years later, though, I read this guy's book. I won't say his name. I don't even think he's alive anymore. The guy that was the head of all that. And I'm reading this book. I'm thinking, man, you are as legalistic as it gets. And you got some error in here. But I'm saying, does that mean God wasn't using him? Does that mean... Boy, am I glad nobody stopped him. They did that for years. And I'm saying, God used them. <laughs> and that's the way it works. I think they were sincere in what they preached and what they believed, even though it was a little bit strange. And there's a brother that has, has come to this church now, and or, or in the past he's come. And back way back when, I think it was 1997, when... God put it on my heart to go out and start, hey, you know, you got this word here. Go out and start sharing it on the streets, kind of like what I saw on the OSU campus. I didn't have any idea how to do that. So my sister knew a guy that, hey, he'd he'd gone around to college campuses. He'd done street preaching. And he had the baptism of the Holy Spirit call him up. Hey, could you come down here and meet another brother in the church, take us out, show us what? We don't have any idea. He's like, sure. Came down. Well, this guy that came down, Dave, me and Dave were like that theologically. He's an Armenian, I'm a Calvinist. And he disagreed with all kinds of stuff our church teaches. But this much I knew about Dave and I could go out and witness with him and have no problems. And he was my friend for a long time. But I knew he would preach, when we go out on those streets, he'd tell people, you need to repent of your sins. And he'd preach the gospel, the law to him. You need to turn from your sins or you'll perish. And you need to put your faith in your whole entire life In the Lord Jesus Christ, not just go to church, give him your whole heart, your whole life. That's what he would preach. That's what I would preach. I'm saying I wasn't having any problem, even though we'd have our discussions. And we'd have some discussions on Arminianism, Calvinism, right? And that's what I see here. So we might not, he didn't even go to church anywhere. As another, He didn't even think he needed to belong to a church. And it's a long story about all that stuff. So we may not agree with people, and we may say, hey, there's things about them, and that's why we're here, and maybe they're somewhere else. But that doesn't mean that they cannot be genuinely ministering the gospel and that God can't be using them. I think that's the point of what we're seeing here. Does you all get that? I don't know that that, at one point I think maybe that had been a problem in our church here. I don't honestly think that is a problem. Because I want to say this, so we can't make one or two verses say everything. There has to be a balance because we can't say back in Mark, we can't say what Jesus is saying there, that we embrace every person or group and all they teach just because they seem to get results and because they, quote unquote, love Jesus. I'm saying I hear that and I'm like, that is just shallow just because someone confesses they love Jesus. That doesn't mean anything. Is you got to fill that in, what that means. There's, uh, the Mormons will talk to you about Jesus, and the Jehovah's Witness will talk. So what does that mean? Because we need to remember, if you would turn over to 2 Corinthians 11. We need to remember this. We need to keep the balance there. He says, would to God, Paul says... Second Corinthians 11, verse 1, you could bear with me a little in my folly. Indeed, bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preaches what? Another Jesus. In other words, think they're not going to be talking about Jesus or using his name or saying they love Jesus? That's not the criteria. There's another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel. They're going to be presenting a gospel which you have not accepted. You might well bear with them, for I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chief apostle. So, there is a Jesus that is preached that is not the Jesus of the Bible. There is a spirit at work. And how do spirits work? Through teaching, right? And generally, I mean, cults are not built without using the Bible, the scriptures, right? So, there's a spirit that'll come. And I'm saying, I'm seeing it coming through doctrine, through music. The world's music has invaded the church. And that's the way it happens. And there's a gospel out there now. He talks about another gospel. There's a gospel out there now. It sounds good. But it's like people with same-sex attraction, homosexuals, they're saying they will have to. They, they call them, that's what their name of them is. That's like calling somebody, you have to be an alcoholic the rest of your life. So there are what they call now same-sex attraction Christians that they can't help. They have to, and you know why? Because they don't have the gospel of deliverance. I've heard one of them talk, and I think he sincerely believes what he does. I'm listening to him. I'm thinking, my friend, you need deliverance. You still have an effeminate spirit about you. You don't know that. He says, I've had these desires. And their thing is, as long as you don't act on them, everything's okay. I'm saying that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel that I'm aware of. The gospel I'm aware of is, no, you don't have to be same-sex attracted all of your life. You don't need to be an alcoholic or a drug addict all your life fighting those desires because everybody has sin. No, I'm saying Jesus says, you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. If God has not designed a man to be attracted to another man, that's not freedom to leave you that way. That's not the good news of the gospel. That's not what I read in Luke chapter 4. So, it's all done, though, under the name of Jesus and Christianity and da-da-da-da-da. So what I'm saying here in Mark 9, Jesus, this man here, he's not making a judgment on this man's beliefs. This guy could have been a young Christian. He could, like a lot of us here, right? He could have had a lot of wrong beliefs. So he's not saying, he's not telling these guys, look, you need to embrace the man and everything he believes. He's saying, look, God can be using this person, right? Right? He doesn't have to have the exact same beliefs we do on every single thing. And if he's saying, if God's using that person, don't hinder him. Don't stop him. Don't judge him. But that doesn't mean we have to accept their wrong beliefs. Amen. Look, we've been taught. Take me out of the picture. Brother Hamilton faithfully taught us the word for 30 years, over 30 years. And I'm saying he saw it. I'm seeing it. People are giving up things that have been faithfully taught that they were convinced of years ago and not for scriptural reasons, right? But because a lot of it is outside influences and teaching. So my thing is here, hey, I don't, Like I just went through however many examples, I'm not saying these people aren't saved, God's not using them. But because, do I have to accept everything about what they're saying that I'm going to give up truths that we've been taught? Do I have to apologize for the truths that God has given us here? I don't think so. We don't have to give up that truth, right? We have to give up the truth of occult bondage, of healing, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, the holiness message, non-resistance. Because somebody out there doesn't agree with that. So my whole thing is, I'm going to tell you, I've experienced this. Went to the seminary, got a lot of good things to say about there. But there are people that I knew where they were coming from before I went there. And I would fellowship with them. I had no problem. People that would come over to my house, they liked me and all that. Until they found out certain things I believed. And guess who had a problem? I wasn't having a problem with them at all. All of a sudden, they've got a major problem with me and my wife and what we believe, and there's this, all of a sudden, this standoffish. So the only way I'm going to get them back is if I compromise. So I wasn't shoving anything down anybody's throat. It just came up over a period of time, and they find it out, boom, all of a sudden there's an issue there. And Lisa and I are on vacation, with, and I'm, we're happy with all of them, and I'm saying, she gets in a trial. She couldn't help it, it was the flu, admit it was obvious. And I'm telling you, all of a sudden, everybody liked us on the bus we were traveling on until we had a doctor in our group. Oh, here, I've got all this medicine. I'll give it to you free. Da, da da No, no, just I'm good. I'm good. All of a sudden, we became ostracized. I'm telling you. So where would you rather be? I wanted off that bus at that point, honestly. And you know, you know who helped us? I'm going to tell you who helped us. We had a Jewish charismatic guide. And... Lisa was about ready to pass out one time and me and her interceding. He's, he's like from here to John Abel walking and he sees the Lord showed him that she's in a serious trial. There's nobody else there who would pray for us. No, it's like, here's your here's our prayer for you. It's right here in his box. Medicine. No, he came up and he says, I want to pray with you all. And I'm saying that was we're going to talk about a cup of cold water. That's uh, he wasn't part of our group. I don't, this, I don't know what kind of group he's a part of. He goes to church with me. Man, was I glad he came up there. That's a blessing, and that's what we're talking about. I didn't be like, no, wait a minute. Let me ask you a few questions before you help me <laughs> pray with my wife. It wasn't like that at all. It's like, praise God, he sent on me. I'm practically in tears that God sent that man alone. Now, that's the way it is. So here we are in Mark 9, and he says here, Jesus, in Mark 9, he says, forbid him not. And he gives Three reasons why. We've looked at two of them. Wherever you see a four, those are the reasons. He says, forbid him not. The first one, four. He says, there's no man which can do a miracle in my name that can speak lightly of me. The second one is verse 40. Four. Here's why you don't forbid him. He that is not against us, like this man is on our part. And the third one is for whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ. Truly, I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And he's saying, hey, don't have a bad attitude towards others just because they're not part of your group, because they may be the ones that God uses to help you sometime, just like it happened to Lisa and I on that trip when you're in trouble Isn't that what that's saying there? I'm going to tell you something. There wasn't water fountains. You go over there, still aren't. There aren't water fountains everywhere in Palestine, and there was none back then. If you wanted water, how did you get water? You had to go to the well. The woman at the well, right? You had to go to the well and draw that water out. So it's just not everywhere. And so these guys, he's saying, you're going to be going through towns on these dusty roads in the heat of summer, and you're going to be parched. And you're going to walk up to somebody, hey, Can I have a drink? Well, who are you? What's your business? Well, I'm a Christian from Antioch, and I've come to your town to share the good news about my Lord Jesus. That's what I'm here for. And he says, somebody that tells you, I'm glad you're here. I want to hear about this. I'll be glad to give you a cup of cold water. Please come in. And Jesus says, that person, small a thing as that is, that was just common courtesy in Palestine. But he's saying, if you'll do that because you're one of mine, Because there was, you know, Mark's writing this to persecuted Christians in Rome. They weren't getting a lot of kindness. And so the point is, hey, you'll do that small act of kindness. That's about the least thing you could do in that culture. He said, but you do that because you're one of mine. He says, that person will not lose their reward. So I'm saying things may get to the point to where, and and a lot of times I'm sure we've had this happen when somebody from outside of our group helps us in any way just because we're Christians, we'll be glad. And Jesus, remember, he says, when they're helping us or we're helping somebody else that's not a part of our group because they're a Christian, he says, we're helping them. So we had a sister here at our church. Some brothers have been helping or have fixed some things up at her house. Let me put it that way. And one of the contractors they got involved is not a member of our church. But he gave his time. No one asked him to. We were more than glad to pay him. Wouldn't take a penny for anything he did. So he says, I know that this woman's older, she lives alone, and she's a Christian. And he says, I am more than glad to help. And he says, just let me know. If you've got anybody else there in your church or anybody that you know of, I'm glad to help. Now that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? Oh, no. We only have people in our group do work for people at our church. No, that's not the way it works, right? And Jesus said he shall not lose his reward. So this person isn't famous. Just a cup of cold water, that's what he had. And that's the point of all this. We don't have to be famous, wealthy, or talented. We may be, as they say, that one-talent Christian. Somebody nobody takes much notice of. And all we can offer is that cup of cold water. The widow's mite. Our prayers, a note, pick up the trash, whatever. And Jesus says, you'll not lose your reward. He says, I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. We didn't see you, oh yes, you did. When you saw one of my people. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me when you persecute the church? And you say, well, I don't do things for rewards careful, because he promises them right here, here and in the Sermon on the Mount. And one day, God is going to make everything right. And so he's going to reward those that don't appear to be rewarded here on earth, and he's going to punish those that did the opposite. That's the way it's going to be. Nothing wrong with doing things to be rewarded. Jesus offers that as an incentive, doesn't he? Right here. And so look in verse 42. He says, and whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck and he were cast into the sea. So we're not only encouraged to help those that are lowly and insignificant, we're warned that we better not offend them. That's the other part of this, not cause them to stumble. So everybody likes to praise the person they think is spiritual, but we need to be careful that we're not playing favorites and ignoring the one talent Christians so if you turn to one last place turn over to James 2 James 2 and we'll see this principle here in James chapter 2 he says don't offend him it's a bad thing to do James 2, verse 1, it says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place. But you say to the poor, You stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? He says, hearken, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. Put a stumbling block in front of them. He says, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, he says, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if they commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. He says, so speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy. And he says, mercy rejoices against judgment. So mercy, he's saying, is what we need to show to all of God's children. And a lot of us, or a lot of you, should I say, are really good at that really good at looking out for people that seem like nobody's talking to them, nobody's showing them any kindness, and go out of your way to do that. And I think that's a great thing. He says, we're not to despise any of them. That's what Jesus says. Nobody that is one of his children, and that is serious. So he says the judgment a person will face that's offended, the lowly, the ignored, the poor, will be much worse, he says, than having a millstone hung around his neck and drowned. And I'm telling you, the way that a millstone was no small thing. That thing was over six feet tall. And it took a donkey to turn that thing around. One man couldn't drag it around. And he's saying, they take you down to a boat and they put you in a boat and they tie a chain around your neck. And they take that chain and they put it around that millstone. And it takes several strong guys to get that millstone up into that boat. And they row that boat out into the sea and get out into the sea, and they lift that thing up, and they throw that millstone, hits the water, sinks like lead, and that changes, jerks your neck, and you go right down with it. And you're down there never to come up. And the Jews, they, they were afraid, they were terrified of the sea. Drowning was the worst death they could imagine, and that's what he's telling them. He's saying, wait a minute, you would rather have that, as bad as that would be, happen to you, then he says to offend one of these little ones and have to stand before me on the day of judgment that's how serious he's making it and that's how serious we need to take it those are sober words aren't they really is and that's the words of our lord right there so what should our attitude the title of the message is our attitude towards outsiders those not in our group that god's using now I'm saying if they're preaching the gospel and truth-pointing people to put their trust in our Lord, I'm saying we should rejoice. Just not because they're one of us, but just because it's being done. Because God can and does use people that don't agree with everything we teach here. God will meet people where they are, both in the giving and in the receiving of the gospel. He meets, he's met us all where we were, so we shouldn't forbid, criticize, or hinder others who are preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. But like I said, it doesn't mean we should compromise or give up truth that God has given us. It says in Proverbs, buy the truth and sell it not. No price on the truth. We have got to hold on to that, right? So people may separate us from us because we won't compromise on what we believe. And that is just a price we have to pay. A price we had to pay. And we though through that, have to maintain a right attitude, don't we? towards that you can't be resentful can't be bitter can't envy people like i said the last point we made is many times we're going to find christians that don't agree with us and on every little point and they're the ones god uses to help us and so we need to be glad for that right that's the way god works and if all we have is a cup of cold water to give somebody he's saying Don't worry about that. He's saying the Lord knows and the Lord will reward you. I'm going to close with this verse out of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. heavenly father we just thank you lord once again for the truth of your word and i just ask lord that you'll help us to have the balance that we will not despise or look down on or criticize or stop those that are sincerely preaching your word out of envy out of jealousy or because they're not part of our group but that we'll rejoice lord that your gospel is being proclaimed and your glory is being revealed and when they're saved lord it's to your glory and I just ask you'll put that in our heart lord And we'll look out for the little ones and be willing to give that cup of cold water to whoever and to receive it from whoever. And I just thank you that you'll show us all that and put that in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.